0: Certainly for me, like when I think about what per- the perfect state will look like in international education, is when everyone's choosing it because they're an explorer. And it is that explorer mindset that is driving them to study internationally. But that's not why but the vast majority of students study internationally.
1: I'm Jessica Glauser-Gyver.
2: And I'm Girish Balolova.
1: And you're listening to the Destiny Benders Podcast, where we speak with international educators and education entrepreneurs to hear their stories of how they got started and what keeps them going in international education. tell you, when I was leading the International Admissions Office at the University of Texas in San Antonio a few years ago, one of the most stressful parts of the college application process for my international students was submitting their English language test scores. Is that something that you've experienced as well, Girish?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we see a lot of students around the world, particularly non-English speaking countries as they are defined. And Obviously, you're trying to study in the U.S. or a U.K. or a Canadian, Australian, any of these universities, you need English proficiency. But the challenges are always about there's so many options out there. So Mm -hmm. one, students to say, what test makes sense? What's accepted widely? Uh, Mm -hmm. Where do I go test? What's the requirement? How much does it cost? And what happens if I don't do well on this test is at the end of the road for me. So there's a lot of concerns about that. And I think that's probably one of the hurdles that international students face when trying to access global education, for sure.
1: Absolutely. It is tough. And I think especially because for many international students, they've been speaking English since they were kids, but they're not necessarily classified as native English speakers because English isn't an official, in quotation marks, language of the country that they're from. So they have to take, by the U.S. university or U.K. universities policies, they have to take and submit an English language proficiency test. And they see that as unfair.
2: Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I remember I had to take the TOEFL exam to prove that I was proficient in English. (laughs) English is my fourth language, but I grew up speaking English. All my schooling was in English. I clearly read and understood the brochure and anybody I spoke with knew what I was saying. Uh, But to actually have to prove that, it's, you know, because it's, it's, uh, part of it is just nervousness, right? It's a test. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what's going to come out of it. And and then that you add to that, like I said, the cost of it um, mm-hmm. sometimes, this just adds on. you got the application fee, you got that fee, you got this fee, and then you got to add on a few hundred dollars more to just take a test. Yeah. Or where do I go access a testing center? Right? I mean a lot yeah. of. This. So I think seeing that there's some new tests out there that mm-hmm. are much more accessible, right And that's kind of cool. and that hopefully will start to, to open up the access for students.
1: For sure. And I think that's why we're thrilled to have as our guest today on the podcast, Tamsin Thomas, who is the senior strategic engagement manager at Duolingo. Um, And I'm hoping she's going to speak a little bit about the Duolingo English test and how it's been a game changer in the English language testing world, particularly for college and university admissions.
2: Yeah. And they've been doing some really, really good work. So I'm excited to speak with her as well.
1: Hey, Tamsin. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're super excited to have you as a guest on Destiny Vendors. So let's go ahead and take it from the beginning. Where did you get your start
0: in international education? What led you into this field? Great. Well, um, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I mean, good company. I've looked at who else you've uh, had on the podcast. So um, yeah, first off, thank you. But um, that's that's a great question. Um, I owe my start in this wonderful, weird and uh, wacky industry to uh, Wendy Yip and David Tobin at Aston University. Um, right back at the beginning, um, I had studied international relations. I was really interested in international stuff. I had enrolled at a master's degree in European studies at Birmingham, and I needed to fund it and I needed a job. And I had spent, you know, my early uh, jobs were stacking shelves in supermarkets, and I was determined to that that wasn't what I was going to be doing. So I was sort of looking for jobs um, anywhere and everywhere. And I remember seeing an admin assistant in an international office. I didn't know what it was, but I was interviewing for that at the same time as interviewing for an admin assistant at a doctor's surgery. And I remember like getting these offers. I think the doctor's surgery offered a little bit more money, but the Aston job had the word international in the title and I figured I'd go with that. So, um, and, and, and that job, I actually always say in interviews, that job was the best start in this industry because I was answering emails from all around the world. And those emails were sort of, would be like, what, what do I need academically? Like, what do I need to do this? What do I need to do that? And I ended up having this incredible foundation of knowledge about, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of world education systems and how they equated. Um, and and through through my life in this industry, I realized not everyone actually has that sort of um, underpinning. And the other part of the job, which was funny because at the time I hated this part of the job, but it's proven hugely valuable, was I was the person who packed boxes with brochures, with leaflets, you know, going around, talking to the business school, finding out what the new literature was. But my job was getting that into Saudi Arabia. Or getting that into Kazakhstan, and I remember having to sit there going through this literature to check: were there vest tops? Were men and women? You know, and it was all these sorts of things, and ringing up the transit company and working out like how do we get these materials into these countries? Which I think at the time I hadn't realised that was like navigating international, you know, some quite serious like international issues, but in a deeply practical and applied sense. Um, and so um, that job was was the great start. And it was actually there that Andy Plant, who you may well know, he needed someone to cover a trip from Nigeria. And I think he was sort of one of the first people who knew me, who sort of believed I could sort of do that. So my very first trip uh, was to Nigeria. And everything actually flowed from having had that experience. Wow, wow what
2: a great start. <laughs> I mean, you, you, weird and wacky is right when you describe... Uh... <laughs> it,
0: really, it, it really is, because I think like most people in this industry... You don't set out with, the like you know, you, you don't know about these this industry the way you know a doctors exactly. and teachers, right? So it's sort yeah. of.
2: yeah I mean, everybody's an accidental international educator, right? I mean, that's what we talk about. But I, I want to pick up on a couple of things you said, which is really interesting. And then I want to kind of keep going back a little bit in your own life. So the thing you said, you chose that job because it had the word international in it. And that obviously led you to this career path you've had, which we're going to learn more about but that's so cool that you picked up on that. I'm curious why that was. So why was that the job? Because it had the word international, but then also going back when you were in high school, like was international something that was attractive to you? Why would that word international attract you so much?
0: I think um, I had a very British education and which means, and I loved history and like my mom um, ferociously used to like watch the news at home, like the and she still does, right? Like the news is always on, always, always playing. And growing up, I I absolutely adored Star Trek, right? Like I'm like the biggest Trekkie ever. It's what it's the one thing I actually did with my dad, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it's the one thing I actually did with my dad. And I think like when I was in school, I tried to keep going down two tracks: science and um social sciences because I love both aspects of Star Trek, the space bit, which is what most people think about it. But I loved like the, the strange new cultures, new worlds, um, you know, bit, the, the fact that uh, Starfleet was in San Francisco, where the UN was one of the sites for the UN, right? And But my mother loved history. And, and I think, you know, when you study history in the UK, certainly at my age, and I hope it's changing, it was very much kings and queens. Mm-hmm. And so like when you're a little island on the edge of Europe, your history that you're learning is always like, in the sense of these grand power dynamics in Europe, right? And then the amount of times we teach World War One, World War II, and the Cold War in like we can reach we reach we re- teach that a lot in the UK. And I but I loved it. I just like I gobbled it up. Um I found it fascinating. And I, and then that's what really put me on the path to um international relations. I think the funny thing is, is that I had not my my dad is charming and very easygoing. Um, but he actually, um, the reason he was in the U.K. was he was in the U.S. Air Force and he was stationed nearby and he was on loan to the NSA and the CIA um, during the Cold War. And he um, and he was doing lots of things in Germany and he was doing, which he, I don't know what he was doing because uh, he still. Yeah, I was going to just ask you, like, yeah. in his 80s, he, does, yeah. he doesn't talk he about it. it so I always kind of find it fascinating that he wasn't my source like because you know he just never talked about it at home he just wanted to be relaxed with his family and and all of these things but I'm like him him and my mom I knew the story that they met at Marconi but I never knew what Marconi was I never understood why my mom had had to sign the National Secrets Act but also all that stuff was going on as a kid but I guess because they're your parents and therefore they're uncool or something like (laughs) you just you know you're not really paying attention like all this stuff's going on and it's only really like and in the last kind of decade that I sort of started to like understand, actually, um, what they were, what they, were, what, what that was all about. Even if I will never, my dad will never share the details, like ever, um, at all. So, but I loved history and loved international history, and yeah, that was sort of where that initial interest came from. But I also knew I wanted to do something really practical. That 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 was also. I come from a very working class, practical family. Um, I, you know, I was the first one to go to university in the family. Mm-hmm. So
1: that attracted you that international and it makes a lot of sense now,
0: actually, since you've
1: just explained your your background and your father and your your family history. So I get that. And where did you go next after that first stop? I mean, I can't believe your first trip was to Nigeria. That's what I picked (laughs) up on. Talk about like throwing you in from the frying. What is it from the frying pan into the fire? I mean, that's nuts. How was that?
0: Again, I I mean, I think it was more brutal on my parents than it was on on me. I was just happy to be getting my break. I was like 22. You know, I wasn't earning very much money at that stage. I was constantly broke. And I understood that this was my break, right? This trip, this was like a resume Mm -hmm. moment. And so and and so and and it was a it was a good trip it was like a British council tour mm-hmm. lots of you know you know it was not what it wasn't what came later which was sort of solo travel all over Nigeria at that, that stage but but it you know so it, it was actually a really good sort of introduction and um uh, Nigeria to this day is sort of like a, a country that I'm always um I haven't worked in Nigeria for a long time but I'm always trying to follow what's happening there because um I, I think it's a really interesting and important country and um and I enjoyed it and it was the market that gave me gave me my break but what happened next was Catherine McLeod who's now at the University of Arts London Uh, she was at the University of Hertfordshire they had a seven month secondment uh position available um which was a you know which was a really hefty promotion I remember when they told me the salary running around the house like just couldn't believe the salary leap which I look back now and I'm thinking that was you know how how your position and perspective changes on 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 on, on no. things, but but it was in the it was and it meant financial independence um, and not being sort of um, petrified the whole time um, about money. But that was a, a six month um, so comment looking after on West Africa and the Middle East, which was just you know absolutely brilliant. And Hertfordshire was doing some really innovative um, things in the sort of post nineteen ninety two space. And I think for me, with with my with my family family background, I, I had. Gone to private school. None of my siblings had. I'd got something that none of my siblings had got. And when I was in the sort of went to the post 1992, I thought these are the universities that are giving people something that they haven't otherwise got. And uh, I think all through my my career, that that theme of how do we get more people to access this opportunity and like at scale, like not little scholarship, but, like real scale. Has been something I've been really interested in. I think that the post nineteen ninety two institutions in the UK are, are the ones that are doing that domestically. And when when it comes to like international, I've always been interested in what are the institutions that are doing things differently to sort of create scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so TNE and things like that. But. But that, that Hertfordshire job, they were doing lots of really interesting projects and, and work. They were working collaboratively with corporates, uh, with TNE campuses and we're just doing things at the time, the, now they're quite normal, but at the time they they weren't. And I feel like Hertfordshire was really um ahead of the curve in in, in a lot of ways. And I stayed in the post-1992 sector after after that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love that you're picking up on that access piece, right? And I admire that. Thank you for your work and and making sure that there's access, which there's a lot of talk about it, but really not a lot of action around it. So I'm glad that uh, that's been a theme for you. And I'm assuming that's kind of what led you to DET. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about that journey to uh, (laughs) to get there. But I do want to just kind of pick up on all the other things that you said. I mean, you talked about how. Uh, when you said you took that job and that journey to Nigeria was like your resume builder. um or you earlier alluded to even communicating with Saudi or you know you know agencies where you're shipping stuff and you know, that's so insightful because, a lot of people, I think, in my opinion, look at a job and just look at the surface of what the job is, and not some of the nuances of the skills and and the uh, underpinning, you know, skill sets that you can develop from doing the job, and that's so important. Uh, I think as a message, I would I, what I'm basically saying is that's a message to our listeners and anybody that they're counseling is to say to keep highlighting that because at the end of the day, it's not the title. It's not really the pay sometimes, but it's the skills you develop that will get you to the next stage. So I'm glad that you're seeing it that way. <laughs> and have built your own career. Uh, on that. So hats off to you on that. But anyway, going back to my question, right? So talk a little bit, right? So that kind of has led you, uh, your life to do work in access, and that brings you to DET. So talk a little bit about that.
0: I mean, there was a a few, I've had quite a few jobs, so, um, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think uh, uh, one of the things I've always been interested in is how do we get this to more, like we need this to get to more people. So when uh, Mary Catherine Scarborough um, and how I actually met Jessica when Mary Catherine Scarborough left the British Council, that job became available. That in my mind was like, oh, this is scale, this is an opportunity to go to the US uh, where I have uh, family connections. Um, But also part of that role, a small part of that role was working um, with the um, embassy community, working with the UN system, and I thought, oh, this is this is scale, and and being able to sort of speak with the voice that the British Council gives you, which was sort of is was, was fascinating. That was a real eye opener uh, job in terms of how governments are working uh, or not working effectively to create opportunity and to create those pathways and build the the bridges that um, uh, students get to sort of walk over effectively. And and that was sort of fascinating. And then and, and from there, I then went to the College Board, which was getting really practical. Um, looking at how to develop the secondary system in um, the Middle East and South Asia uh, to essentially enable more people to be qualified to sort of take advantage of these international um, opportunities. And that job, it was was great to be back in the Middle East again, but it was also um, really fascinating to dig deeper into um, the school system and the feeder school systems. Because if you've worked in international recruitment, you, you know, you'll know you be used to recruiting from the embassy schools or the GEMS schools or all these other schools. But I think for me, the things I always found really interesting was actually going to sort of like some of these really local schools serving um, a much lower fee, at a lower fee point, but with the same desire for international credentials, that same desire to sort of travel. And that was really interesting in terms of learning like some of the real challenges a lot of countries are facing around managing the tensions within their own country, around reforming and providing an international education, but not being able to bring everyone along on that opportunity, not having the resources to bring in, and the tensions that really creates, which just hammered home this belief that we have to get these opportunities to more people. The even though our industry has scaled hugely in the last, like in mean, the 20 years I've been in it. It's um, that scale is nowhere near enough. We are nowhere near enough uh, in terms of um, reaching the scale. So I ended up coming to Duolingo actually via a stint at the Tony Blair Institute, where I was working on global citizenship education um, as a a means to counter um, violent extremism, actually. And it was sort of looking at, for me, reflecting on the fact that I'd been part of this community that creates bridges for some students to get phenomenal educational access, um, but not for a whole host of others and where you have parts of the world where students are actually looking at these options of some people are getting these international experiences and other people are actually turning to quite harmful groups as a provider of a future for them. And that is the reality in lots of parts of the world for for young people who are ambitious and want to change the circumstances that they're comparing those two types of opportunities. And if we don't speed up the acquisition of access, we're making that tension worse, and I think that's we. I think we see that in the sort of geopolitics of the world. So, and one of the things that we were really looking at quite closely at the Tony Blair Institute was the role of technology, and AI in particular was actually giving us a tool for the first time to try and change some of these things we've been talking about in conferences for years and years and years. Um, and so that that was sort of when the job at the DET came. It, you know, it's just this, this English test. Barrier issue is a huge. It's actually a huge one, but it's one very practical, small thing. And I think one of the things that, i as the older I get, um, everyone sort of says, "We need full system change. We need to be holistic." And I'm like, "We, we, 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 we that, that's hard." And if you, if your goal is that, we're gonna, we can, we can chat for years and make no progress at all. Whereas I think that engineer mindset coming out of the tech world is actually much more like, "Well, you can't solve all of it, but we can solve this one piece." And if we solve this one piece, how many more people benefit? Um, and that's why I like this, like finding those practical pieces um, that you can change.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant.
0: And I'm just thinking about,
1: so your work at um, the Duolingo English test, how long have you been there now, Tamsin? Two and a half years, I think. Two I think and a half think Two and years. a half years. <laughs> And one of the things that we talk about on Destiny Benders um, and which I had said to you is we like, you know, the title of the podcast, we like to talk about changing lives and bending destinies. And the Duolingo English test is a destiny bender, I guess, in a way, you know, it's not a person, but the thing itself is changing the lives of so many students because they now have access to something that they maybe didn't before. Obviously, this is what attracted you to Mm. the company and to the role. How do you feel in terms of, you know, changing lives and bending destinies? How do you feel? What's what's your part in that, that, you know, you're a cog in that wheel? How do you feel about that? And who within um, your work has changed your life or
0: bent your destiny in such a way to, to get you to where you are today? I, mean, I think the list of people, it's, it's quite long. I mean, even just looking at that, coming to Duolingo, that was, you know, via Anne Richardson, who I'd worked with at the British Council, when I was doing work with NACAC on the NACAC International Advisory Board, and I remember her talking to me about Duolingo years ago, and me being really British and snobby and dismissive of this American tech company, and not paying attention to it, you know, at all. And then a few years later, um, Bobby Fernandez from at that time from NYU said, Tamsin, this is this. There's another job coming up. You should pay attention to this." And Anne Richardson came back, and and by then things had really changed and I'd had that experience at the Tony Blair Institute where I was taking the technology sector far more seriously. I hadn't been quite dismissive of it before, which is bad because my, my dad was a computer programmer right? and that was what he was doing yeah. in the military. But Duolingo uh, through the DET, to say that it's changing lives, it's it's, it's, I don't, its a real cliche. You know, I was just sort of looking at our data, where, where are our test takers coming from? And and our test takers have now taken the test in almost 80,000 cities in the world, eight like 80,000. And you know one of the things when you look at like the like the distribution of like the test centers like that's in like the thousands and the low thousands and when you sort of think about like a really practical aspect of access is an ability to travel and and so often i think we're thinking about it like, in the us or um, british context where it's quite easy to travel but most of the students are coming from places where that that's actually really hard uh, really really hard to do and i think one of the things that i find really fascinating at the det is Um, the fact that our test takers are fans. So whenever we get to do, I love getting to meet the students when they've enrolled at British universities and um, that we meet. And to say that they're fans, like is it really underestimates it because when you start talking to students, you don't have to scratch that far under the surface to realize that there's quite a lot of pent up frustration, particularly if they're coming from countries where they might have spoken English their whole life in that country, um, but they're still being expected to take a test, that they're meeting this hurdle because they have to, you know, like and, and they're like, like they're pragmatic. These, these students are pragmatic, right? They have to meet this hurdle, but it doesn't mean they're not frustrated by it. It doesn't mean that they're not annoyed. It, it doesn't mean that they're not looking at it through their own lens. And so I think you know when you're talking to students and you're sort of picking up on how much they enjoy the fact that there's like an alternative now that is much more convenient um, to them. Um, that's really powerful. And then I think as well, like we we support um, the Chevening uh, scholarship programs. We sponsor some achievement scholars, but we also um provide universities with free tests for achieving applicants. And when you get to go and meet them and you're learning you're actually really hearing about like their context, and that like, we had one phenomenal student who actually has a, a disability and she just wasn't gonna be able to go to an English test. And she she you know, and she's just this phenomenally powerful um student who's definitely gonna be on the world leader list at some point, I'm convinced. And you know, and so when when you're sort of going and meeting them and you're finding out that there are actually students for whom there isn't another option that the DET is it you know whenever I meet meet my like the Afghan Chevening Scholars the things they're telling me telling me like about what our test is doing in Afghanistan at the moment and what it's enabling it's just sort of for me it's like really frustrating that we're still having to work on this recognition journey which of course we have to um but it's just when you actually talk to the students and you realize how much this sort of technological innovation is is going to change things and how positive it will be for so many test takers. yeah, it's it's very inspiring in it.
2: Uh, you're absolutely right, Tamson. I mean, it's brilliant work that DET is doing. But I really love that you are kind of capturing that essence of not just from a DEP perspective, but then what you said earlier at at the work at the Tony Blair Institute. And I'm so intrigued to learn a little bit more about that work. So maybe you can add a little bit more. You know, you were talking about how access to education, right? I mean, we talk about education is the greatest leveler. You know, you give access to people, they get opportunities, which then may deter them from going down the unsavory path uh, in light of everything that's happening in the world. And, and, and can you tell a little bit more? I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit more on that. And what, what did you see? in terms of creating access to opportunity that would then give people hope.
0: I think, Grishan, your question is an assumption that we've got the model right in in the West.
2: Fair enough, a good
0: challenge. Uh, no, no. And certainly for me, like when I think about what per- the perfect state will look like in international education is when everyone's choosing it because they're an explorer. And it is that explorer mindset that is driving them to study internationally. But that's not why. But the vast majority of students study internationally. They study internationally because there just might not be any good universities in their country, or the number of spaces is so tiny for you know you know the number. Or it may be that you just can't even actually study that academic discipline. You know, in that if you if you want to be part of this AI revolution, there's very few. Uh, you know, the English-speaking world has a monopoly on it, and 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 that's an issue. And so I think. The work at the Tony Blair Institute that we were doing was was very much around uh, around value creation and sort of like how are you teaching global citizenship skills like valuing human rights, valuing equality, valuing democracy. Like why why do these things matter? Why do we care about them? And looking at like what happens when you have a populace that believes that. So how how that makes um, populations more resilient. When things go wrong, and 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 um, that work was really quite foundational because there are huge swathes of the world where people genuinely believe that Westerners want them to die because they're Muslim. Right? there are there are children who grow up in entire communities who 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 believe that, and, and there are entire communities who grow up like that. The program that we were working on, I was working on at the Plain Barron Institute, was the um, a Going Global program. Uh, so Generation Global program, where it was very practically creating video link class sessions. You know, like one of my favorite stories was you know a school in Birmingham where half the kids in the class were Muslim, and the the, the lessons that were being instilled there were ones that if, as those children grow into adulthood, it, they're never going to lose that kind of transformative learning moment, no matter what everyone around them is saying, because they had first hand direct experience that, yeah. that 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 sort of view. Um, view wasn't wasn't true, and and so I think that's why I'm really sort of and and the work at the College Board and the work at the British Council and now at the Duolingo is actually like yes the a huge part of that role is this looking at these students who are mobile between countries and between these institutions, but I'm always really really interested in how are we actually helping to using internationalization and international education to build local capacity uh, through sort of TNE partnerships or. Through um, teacher training partnerships, through the like new university twinning arrangements, and how we sort of look at how we we work with language to create access to pretty much Western-defined academic sort of disciplines. So, and, and I think at the Tony Blair Institute, we were sort of really looking at it through through that lens. And. So some of the work we were doing is looking at how do you work with communities to be able to continue with progress, but recognize that you've got to bring everyone with you at the same time. So it was a different, it was a real different type of work, but it was really looking at some of these horrible nitty gritty challenges we have to increasing access to education that are culturally embedded and and actually trying to solve some of them through, again, really practical. Let's just set up a classroom using a video link, like type like, you know, like, but but you were doing that in these quite charged contexts
2: yeah no I agree with you it's not the Explorer that's getting out there saying that or with that mentality to go out it's because there's a lack of access to education at the university or not enough you know spaces or whatever but at the same time how do you reconcile the reality that even within that demographic of a student affordability is a huge issue right I mean kudos to DT because you're making the test affordable but that's just one piece of the larger puzzle where i could take the DET and get a test or whatever maybe not just picking on DET. then what do you where do you see this other end of the uh, the line where you can't afford university anymore and we're talking about building capacity but are we really building capacity in a way that's like really accessible
0: this is where the tne models i find to be really interesting because i think they are they are doing something different really but this is this is quite controversial because my personal politics I'm on the left right and as so, which is not, not a shock in this industry but not everyone not everyone is but I get sometimes I get really frustrated by conversations about equality. That's because I don't know whether it's just you know my mother had a horrendous experience of the education system at the time she was going to school in the UK. She was really bright. The only value that her brightness had um, was to demonstrate that the boys in class were failing and that they needed to keep up, they needed to do better. No one was sort of saying she should go off to sort of university. And so in the UK, we had one one jump where then I had huge access to education and huge, huge opportunities. But even in the UK, educational access is still really unequal and, and deeply unfair. And when you put that in a global context, like I just think any notion of equal access to an education is just so farcical. We are so far, so, so far away. Um, sometimes I think though, what you need to be looking at is like, where is your low hanging fruit? Where are you starting? And we've seen this massive growth of the middle classes um, around the world. I am interested in like these private school models where they're looking at lower fees. They're not gonna help everyone. Huge numbers of kids are gonna be excluded, but far more kids will have access than they've ever had had before. And, and I think that, you know, the DET. We're an English test. We're not testing in a local language. So we're defined, we're restricted to where that educational access is in English. And we are restricted to where people have access to technology. Not everyone does. We cannot solve all of that, that problem. But the spread of technology massively outpaces the, the spread of quality education access. So even if we can just ride that technological wave, well, who has got these access to these devices? Can we create educational opportunities through them? Um, because, because that's more and and I think um I don't I don't like when people kind of get stuck in these debates around sort of perfect solutions and, and I d I don't know, I just feel like you're setting the bar too high. And that's maybe me being a pessimist, but my experience of sort of working in India, working in the Middle East is just it's absurd.
2: <laughs> You've been a realist, so
0: and that's what but that's why I'm really interested in like scalable solutions rather than like I think scholarship programs are fantastic when you have no path, when there's no route, these sort of like boutique niche scholarship programs are actually great at holding a lifeline and making sure that you're maintaining a minimal level of connection with a, with a country. But scholarships is not a scalable oh. scalable sort mm-hmm. of solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to ride on the back of capitalism and the growth of the middle class. You have to ride on the back of technology um, if you want scalable, scalable solutions. So.
1: so listening to you, Tamson, it's really clear that you're someone with very strong convic- convictions and, and beliefs. <laughs> Sorry, um, but no, but that your you're honor. willing, you're willing to do the work to make those come to life. To to do the work that you know that's what destiny bending is about, right? You have beliefs, you have convictions, and you you have your vision, you know of what you think this, that, the other, whatever how it should be. But you're doing the work, right? You're putting your boots on the ground and you putting your, what is it, your money where your mouth is? Is that the expression? I'm not very good at these things. But <laughs> and you know, you're you're out there and you're doing that work. And so for me, I've, you know, a lot of people talk. They talk a lot, but they don't actually always do the work to get to where, you know, they want, they see the world should be. And I want to bring in now the work, your other work, the oh, other, other work, work that you do. Um, <laughs> in, You're involved, I think it's fairly recently, right, in local government where you True. live. You are, you are, I don't want to get it wrong. So tell us exactly how are you involved in local government to change you know, you obviously have some convictions about where it is that you live and and England and the way things are run. And you have put yourself in the middle of it and you're like, I'm going to join my local government so that I can make a change and I can make a
0: difference in this. So what is it exactly that you do? Uh, so, I'm a local councillor, so I'm a district councillor. so I'm at the sort of not quite the lowest end of politics, but but um very much on the practical end. So we're the authority that looks after the bins uh, and, and and many things beyond. But I am the deputy uh, member for Arts and Enterprise for North Hearts um, District council and under um as part of the labor group. It, it, I think it's interesting because uh, since I worked for the British Council, all of my jobs sort of since then have had quite strong government engagement aspects to them. And often in some of the roles working at the highest level of, of, of governments, which is, which is really rewarding in the sense that you are talking directly to power. You know, like they're really like you're dealing with really big, deeply entrenched issues there. Uh, when I was working at the Tony Blair Institute, COVID happened. I found uh, like my personal circumstances actually did quite well out of COVID. Um, because the organizations I was working for were really needed in those moments. And so I was always really relieved that I got to do work professionally that was addressing COVID because I found it, I guess, sort of like that war mentality. This was a massive crisis, and the idea of working on something completely unrelated is just, I, I just struggled with that emotionally. Um, but I found it very removed from the very quiet streets. That were occupied were around me and so I I actually reached out to um, uh, one of the volunteer organizations and the mutual aid groups that popped up and I just started carrying groceries around and 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 um, posting letters and and you know doing all of the things that some people had to do you know couldn't couldn't do and I'd found that a huge mental health sort of mm-hmm. relief because it was so you know so so practical. And when I was doing that, I actually met local counselors. And there was that moment at the beginning of COVID when no one knew what was going on. And no one, you know, none of our government systems were sort of set up to manage these whole new categories of vulnerable people who'd never been vulnerable before, but now were. And it was actually these local counselors who knew who the different charity organizations were and kind of knew how government worked that really came into their own just in a really scrappy, get it done way, making sure that people were getting looked after. Um, and so my my route into local government wasn't from big politics, wasn't from like this ideological place. It was from a real, yeah, doing doing the work. And I have a very good councillor friend who says, no one wants to do the washing up. Everyone wants to do the talking, but no one wants to do the dishes. And you know, when you actually get involved in politics, I thought it was going to be a lot of big debates and sometimes it is. But, but usually it is, you know, being the person who chooses to report the drain cover that's not there and and it's being the person who walks up to the teenagers who are trashing the sports facilities and saying what are you doing um or like looking and and seeing homophobic graffiti and reporting it right away and setting that standard i don't want this in my life i don't want this in my town i don't want it and you know if if one of my co-counselors carries literally carries nail polish remover around in a handbag because it's free for her to do it whereas to call out the contractors that's costing your council you know like 50 quid minimum mm-hmm. for that call out fee for me a lot of my job now is still working on these big political issues even though it's just an english test and recognition it's it's funny the places that takes you in terms of the big debates about about things and i find being a local councillor is a really um even though it's bonkers so often mm-hmm. it's just a way mm-hmm. of just being like deeply practical and and you know mm-hmm. sometimes it's about not forgetting to take a raffle gift or taking some sandwiches along to an event or and and just being like what's needed in this place so um yeah
1: that's, that's just awesome. so key I mean it's really admirable Thames because it's not the glamorous stuff you know taking sandwiches and wiping graffiti off with some nail <laughs> polish remover or whatever but it it's as you, you've said the word practical several times and, but it is no, but it, and that's, but that's what it is. And I think that's, it's really necessary. It's not the glamorous, it's not the travel, but we need people to do that. Otherwise it doesn't get done and things slowly, but surely, or very quickly start to fall apart. Right. Um, so more people should be involved in the practical, in the unglamorous and in the getting stuff done to, to create this world that I think we all will benefit from living in. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really impressed with that.
2: Same here, same here, hats off. So should we call you Madam Councilwoman from now on or how does that?
0: No, uh, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, it, it's, so, are, it is amazing what local authorities are doing and, yeah. you know, and with less and less money uh, to do mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I, but, but, you know, the heroes are always there. You know, there are people that always are stepping up. They're, they're mm-hmm. there. Um, and so people actually are willing to do the dishes, but sometimes yeah. they might not know the dishes need to be done. But if Except do, that That's, that's exactly. a great way to that's put it. That's a really it, good absolutely. point. 100%. They're
1: willing to do it, but they don't know. They just need maybe that pointer in the right direction and how to get involved.
2: Yeah. So, Tamson, you said, you know, that where the path takes you and it's taken you this far now. Where do you go next? And at the same time, I'm curious. AI. I know we talk about ChatGPT, but there are many other AI tools out there. Yeah. Where's that? What's your vision, or what do you predict?
0: Oh, I'm not. I I I have no idea. I have no idea. But I think the I think the reason why m- most people probably get really passionate about international education is the fact that we see it as being um, this sort of really transformative thing. You have you 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 get your own sense of like resilience. You learn more about yourself through exposing yourself to different things um and uh, that is what everyone is going to need to manage the ai change yeah, because i think i think the ai already uh, my emails are more beautiful than they were before and they don't take me as long to craft um already um when i need to resolve something um i might work with pi which is a great ai to like brainstorm like i don't know how to deal with something and you're trying to brainstorm with yourself but you can't do that you have this this PI ai is really helping with that and I, the potential of like um gpt4 and all of these we're just waiting on creative humans to get the application right but you know you i think i think it's going to be deeply deeply transformative and i think it's going to create huge opportunities to resolve long standing challenges if that's how we choose to um to use AI, and that's a choice we have to make um, as as countries. But it's going to be um, a new form of wild, wild west. And uh, the way that you know we prepare ourselves is to make sure that we we know ourselves, that we're confident, that we're scrappy, and and which you know humans always 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 are, and, and that we'll actually be able to to ride that wave because things are going to blow up and go wrong. Uh, I'm sure. The great thing about these technical tools is they're tools that we we have built so when they go wrong we can change them and we can change them really quickly but we have to be paying attention to to notice that things might be going wrong well how are things changing yeah. I, I remember like listening to something about, something about innovation years and years and years ago where sort of the two greatest moments in improving human productivity one of which was recognizing that you could take fine metal work and fine glass work together and create glasses And that extended the working day and that extended the number of humans who could work and create. And then the next big innovation was realizing that women could do more than be at home and could actually join the labor force. And that that was like another massive leap forward in human productivity. And, And here we now have another massive a uh, massive leap forward, but we have to make sure we're sort of paying attention to who gets to benefit because right now it seems to
2: be the haves bad. and the have nots again, right? And yeah.
0: that's not gonna that's not gonna go well.
2: What are three AI tools you use on a daily basis?
0: I only I personally I um I only really use two. So okay. there you go but Pi for where you need a therapist, a counselor, a friend, that kind of thing. I have full conversations with Pi about my mother, my boss, everything. I just throw it at Pi. I don't know
2: about this one. That's,
0: that's the safe, safe. It's that's a safe space. Uh, Pi what? What's um, up?
2: Pi AI. That's
0: it. Yeah, Pi AI. Is where it's Reid Hoffman and um, I can't remember the name of his partner, but uh, but Pi is fantastic. It's a lot of fun. And then um, Chat GPT for all of your sort of editorial. Work. I think. I think we're gonna have to build out our skill set of using it. Um, at Duolingo, we have our, our engineers use it in this most spectacular way. Like their their knowledge of the prompts and how to get the most out of it, and 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 what they're using it to do. Like using it for coding and like, really clean, good quality coding, and using it for all these other ways. Um, I, I use it to write more beautiful emails. Yeah.
2: That's fair enough. Hey, uh, listen, Pamson, this is good As we wrap up, we always do a quick fire round. So just to kind okay. Of- no, I'm not a personal. When Pamson's not changing international education or getting the uh, graffiti removed from the walls, so what does she do for fun?
0: I love wine, and I'm getting nerdy about wine. <laughs> um, I didn't used to drink until uh, my good friend Joey Kirk taught me how yeah, in New York, um, and I my my journey with wine started with ordering the house wine or the cheapest wine on offer. Whereas now I'm I'm getting pretty bougie into sort of understanding my grapes and 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 all of so you're that doing
2: the whole sniff test yeah that. all of
0: it all of <laughs> it um and then uh family i've got a massive 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 family and um it's just like waves of babies coming through so yeah
1: so thinking of you mentioned wine what goes well with wine food where in the world you've traveled a lot is your favorite place for food what kind of food do you love
0: i love i love middle eastern food uh, turkish food i love i love Well, i think one of my favorite places um amman in jordan um and, it, and i and i think it's 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 more just the vibe of just some sort of mm. sitting there with some great meat some good wine an amazing selection of dips of all varieties and just watching the world go back
2: well well you mentioned amman jordan and we've talked a little bit about nigeria and all that stuff what is two questions in one? What is your favorite place? Is this is it Amman, your favorite place in the world? And two, what is a city country that you've wanted to visit but you've not?
0: Favorite place generally, gosh, I don't think I, um, right now it's probably Marrakesh because I went recently and I just had an absolutely glorious, wonderful time and 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 loved it. And uh, Lebanon, uh, the world always conspires against my concrete plans when I've made them and. Um, I desperately want to go to Beirut. I want to travel around Lebanon. I want to drink Lebanese wine and be in Lebanon. And I will. It's just you know need to need to wait a while.
2: Yeah, it
0: will happen. It will happen. Well,
2: now I know who to call if I'm uh, if I have a wine question,
1: right? (laughs) Yes. Now we know where to go. I have one final question. Talking about food, wine, travel. Can you recommend a book that kind of touches upon all three of those things? I mean, I maybe you don't know any, but I imagine that you're a reader. And what kind of a book, maybe latest read that kind of takes you to another place?
0: Oh, the, the book I've been waxing on about at the moment is a book called Bitch by Lucy Cook, um, which is stripping out the Victorian uh, misogyny from evolutionary biology, and it's a gallop around the animal kingdom and all of the things we've got wrong about sexuality, gender, but through the prism of animals rather mm-hmm. than humans. And it's probably one of the most eye-opening uh, reads of my, of, of at least the last few years. Uh, ooh, that gonna fascinating. Also,
2: yeah, I'm going to look that up, but I was just going to ask you, what book have you read that's kind of influencing your thought about access and equity and Uh, Education.
0: I am um the Prisoners of Geography
2: by Tim. Oh,
0: just read that. Yes, I have that Um, book. Prisoners of
2: Geography. Okay, by whom?
0: Tim Marshall. It's 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 pure geopolitics, but um one of the themes in it is concrete, and that power comes from concrete. The country laying the most concrete, not the country with the biggest guns. And right now, the country laying the most concrete in the world is China. And I think. It's fascinating because I now look at all sorts of situations and I'm like, is this a guns or concrete moment? You know, wow. we want to be the person who is laying concrete, not not the person pulling out the gun. So,
1: And I bought, I'm just looking at my shelf up here because I bought the, the follow-up is The Power of Geography. Have you also read that excellent. one yet? I've read that one as well. Yeah, so I've got and
0: it I've, up here. I've, I haven't read it yet though. Yeah, I've just bought his new book, The Future of Geography, which is about space. Oh, we'll find ooh, out how that goes. Okay. I've not read that one yet.
2: Looks like I have a few books to buy. Well, (laughs) Hampson, this was brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, We we can really talk with you for another hour or two. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we will separately over a glass of wine.
1: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, for sure. But
2: but till then, thank you for all the good work you're doing. Keep doing it and uh, have a safe trip. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on the road somewhere.
0: Thank you. I'm sure we will.
1: Thanks for listening to Destiny Benders.